0: Well, hey, it is great to see you again wherever you happen to be watching this message from. And if somehow you have missed the announcements over the last few weeks, we are beginning to gather again uh, in both outdoor services and then as of a couple weeks ago in indoor services. So, in fact, I get to say a welcome to those of you who are watching this in the worship center at Downs Road or inside the building over at Mill Lake Church Central Abbey Campus. Uh, and so for all of those of you watching from home, would really encourage you, get out. Uh, there's lots of venues and lots of times for these 50-person gatherings uh, over the course of the weekend. And before we jump in, uh, you'll need your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, but before we get rolling, I also want to take a moment to pray for Praxis Church. So you have heard us talk about Praxis over the last several months. Praxis is a new church plant in Kelowna, B.C., it's a partnership of Westside Church, Vancouver, Northview Church here in Abbotsford, and a number of other supporting churches. Pastor Josh Duell and his wife Rebecca and four little girls moved up to Kelowna in, this, in the winter, and they have begun gathering a core team of interested people. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, our own Colin Fast and his wife Elise moved up to join them. And this weekend, they are starting their first of a series of pre-launch summer gatherings leading up to, Lord willing, uh, a public opening in September. And so we want to pray for them. They are meeting this weekend, June 6th, on an outdoor parking lot under a tent on a church parking lot in North Glenmore, just like we're doing here at the Downs Road campus. And so we want to pray for them. So, Father, we do lift up uh, Praxis Church to you as they get rolling over these summer months uh, in these pre-launch services. And, Father, we pray uh, the bigger picture. We pray for the Okanagan Valley. Uh, that you would call thousands of men and women and boys and girls uh, to place their faith and their trust in you. And we pray that many, many of those people will encounter the gospel uh, through the ministry of Praxis Church in the coming years. Uh, But right now in this moment, uh, as they are starting uh, the first of these pre-launch gatherings, we pray for your blessing on them. Uh, All the work that has gone into uh, finding a location, Uh, buying a tent and setting up the chairs and all that goes into these outdoor services. Father, would you let it come together this weekend? It would be a very, very special time for the people who are gathering there. And Lord, I pray that you would bring a strong group of committed workers uh, to come alongside Josh, uh, his wife, Rebecca, and that they would have a great start uh, to this new church planning journey. So we lift them up to you. Uh, We pray your blessing on this new emerging congregation for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Great to do that. Well, one of the hallmarks of democratic society, and you will know this, is the quote-unquote peaceful transfer of power. And it can happen simply because of the regular cycles of election and the limited terms that uh, politicians uh, serve, or sometimes it's unexpected or unplanned. Uh, When Franklin Delano Roosevelt died early into his fourth term as U.S. President, Harry S. Truman was thrust into the presidential role at the height of World War II and all the critical decisions that needed to be made in those days. A few years later, uh, John F. Kennedy is assassinated in 1963, and Lyndon B. Johnson now takes the position of power, United States President. The tumultuous 60s. Uh, The sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and the beginning of the Cold War conflict between the the Soviet nations and the the Western democratic nations. Uh, Neville Chamberlain, there's another story. Prime minister in Britain who had lost the confidence of the people and of the parliament, eventually asking for his resignation, and it made the way for Winston Churchill to take the reins of power at what some have called England's darkest hour. Like there are literally hundreds of examples, if you look back through the history books, of the transfer of the baton of leadership from one generation to the next and from one leader to the next. And as a church family, we are entering a time of transition as Pastor Jeff has accepted a new assignment down in Chicago. Now you probably know this already, but the church at large has not always handled transitions well. There are instances when a leader leaves that the church can languish for months or even years as they try to get back up to speed again. If a pastor stays too long or has lost vision or grown ineffective, maybe drifted theologically, or in the worst case scenario has had a moral failure and is forced to resign, inevitably it pushes the church into a crisis mode. But on the flip side... At the other end of the coin, if a pastor leaves too soon, in people's opinion, when all is going well, when vision is strong and outreach is happening and the church is growing and exciting days are ahead of us, it can be equally hurtful for people or painful. Some will wonder uh, what is going on. And some, in the words of my big fat Greek wedding, will want to ask, why do you want to leave me? So there can be these hurts. The long and the short of it is that pastoral transitions can be challenging times. However, like the passing of a baton in a race, transitions need not be chaotic if they're handled well. There can be a celebration of the leg of the race that is behind us and an anticipation of the leg of the race ahead of us. And so at the end of the month, we will say goodbye to Pastor Jeff and his family. After 15 years of effective and fruitful ministry here at Northview. And for many of you, Pastor Jeff is the only lead pastor at Northview that you have known. You came here during his ministry. Many of you came because of his ministry. In fact, if you're under 25 years old, you probably don't remember any other lead pastor. This is the voice that you grew up under. And so we want to send them well. We want to bless them. Uh, We want to say thank you to God for 15 years and celebrate all the good things that the Lord accomplished around Northview during the reign of King Jeffrey the Benevolent. (laughs) It's been 15 great years. And then, of course, the challenge before us is to pick up the race like in a relay to grab the baton and to keep running strong. You will know that the most critical point in a relay race is that handing of the baton between the runners, the moment in the exchange zone where that handoff is made. Uh, In an ideal setting, both runners are running at top speed and they hit that exchange zone and the handoff is made and the outgoing runner keeps right on blasting. It's three very common metaphors in the New Testament. For the life of the Christian faith, uh, the life of the soldier, the life of the farmer, and the life of the athlete, and of all the athletic metaphors that are used in the New Testament, the most common is that of the runner, probably because of the Olympic Games and the uh, the many running games that were part of those days. And Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, is one of my favorites. It's one of the most inspirational, and I'm going to read it. From the message paraphrase. Now, before you freak out, I understand the message is not a study Bible. It's not where you go for expositional thought. But I love how Eugene Peterson turns the phrase in this particular section. So just follow along with me. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 from the message. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross. Shame. Whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. I love how that phrase, shoot adrenaline into your souls. I chose our text Hebrews 10 and 12 to remind us of some truth that you already instinctively know that the race of our lifetime is just one leg in the long race of Christian history and of God's work. We're just one generation of runners in a long succession of runners who have gone before us. And if Jesus tarries, who will come behind us. Now, the book of Hebrews has two goals. The first is to lift up Jesus, and second, to encourage us to keep running. The book can be divided pretty neatly into two parts. The first is a theological, doctrinal, philosophical foundation. It's laid down in that first nine chapters. And then the second part is the call to action. A response, it answers the now what? How should we live our lives in response to this? Now, we don't have time to dig into those first nine and a half chapters, but to truly grasp the conversation of Hebrews, you need at least some Old Testament knowledge. Because in these first chapters, the author lifts up Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and sacrificial system. How was it in the Old Testament That people were made right with God? And the answer is this through the mediation of a priest. How do you get right with God? Through the mediation of a priest. And so the author takes two thirds of this book, nine and a half chapters, to argue that a new priest has arrived to do what no other high priest before him could do, and that was to deal with sins once and for all. Not just to take aside sin for a moment or to cover them over for one more year, like the Day of Atonement, but rather to take them away entirely, that Jesus Christ finished the work that no earthly priest could finish. And so we see the phrase repeated again and again, Look to Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. Consider Jesus. You want to get things right with God? You want to know what fellowship with the Lord is all about? You want the path to freedom and to forgiveness and to a life of flourishing? Then get your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter Our faith. He did what no earthly priest could do. So, the second focus, which is our focus today, is the call to run the race with endurance. Based on what Jesus accomplished, now run your race. And it is set in several different ways throughout this book. Hold fast, persevere, pay close attention. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't drift. The summary, the whole book in a sentence, look to Jesus and run your race with endurance. Look to Jesus and run your race with endurance. And every generation of Christ followers has needed this message. The call to persevere. The call to cling tightly to our faith, and the reason we need it is because most of us know people, friends, and family members, who at one time claimed a vibrant faith with Jesus Christ, but over the years have drifted away, have gradually grown cold, and eventually some have turned their back entirely on the Christian faith. In fact, there's a new term that's being bantered about online these days, exvangelicals ex-evangelicals, you can make sense of it, those who have left the evangelical church. Or just Google deconversion stories, or maybe don't, and you will find a long list of testimonies of people who say, I am no longer calling myself a Christian, and here's why. Just last month, a well-known writer for the Desiring God uh, ministry announced on Twitter that he no longer considers himself A believer a couple years ago here in the lower mainland a very famous pastor joshua harris who had led a very influential church had written a very influential christian book had relocated with his family here to vancouver and just over two years ago he announced publicly i'm leaving my wife we're getting a divorce and just a few months later he announced i no longer consider myself a christian The call of Hebrews 12 is so clear. Don't give up. Never quit. But what I want to do is go back to where the paragraph begins in the middle of chapter 10. And I want to grab three phrases there that get us ready for the race day. And those three phrases will be this. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. And we're beginning at Hebrews 10... Verse 19, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, therefore, based on the nine and a half chapters that have gone before, everything that has been written about Jesus up to this point in time, since we have confidence, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because of what's gone before, let's draw near in faith. Now, that phrase, draw near, is repeated many times throughout this book. Chapter 4, verse 16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7, 25 He, speaking of Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And then, of course, here in chapter 10, verse 22, we have confidence to draw near. The confidence is based on what came before, the finished and the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. It gives us a solid foundation for our faith. In fact, it is that act of faith, that decision of faith, the confession of faith, the choice of faith that is the first condition for running this race. In other words, the marathon begins in the starting blocks of faith. Your marathon begins in the starting blocks of faith. You want in on this race? Then you must make the choice to believe. Hebrews 11, it's in the middle of this longer section of scripture. 11 verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near, there's our phrase again, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's a critical factor to take note of that a life of faith, a journey of faith starts with a decision. I choose to believe. I choose to trust. I choose to place my faith in God. And I'm going to just rest here for a few minutes. This is important to acknowledge that our faith, like any other belief system, forces us into a corner to some degree to say, what is going to be your starting point? What is the presupposition that you bring to life? And that by its very nature, every worldview, every philosophy, every faith and religion requires what some call the leap of faith you see there are aspects to every faith or every philosophy that can't be known emphatically it's true for every philosophical worldview that tries to answer the big questions of life where did we come from how did life begin is there any meaning or purpose for us where are we headed and you can answer those questions from two perspectives with god in the equation the theistic worldview or without God in the equation, the atheistic worldview. And so evolutionary thought, naturalism, humanism, materialism, choose as their starting point this decision there is no God. There's no such thing as the spiritual or transcendent dimension to life. All there is to life is what we can see and taste and touch and experience in the natural realm. And I point this out, simply because it's critical for honest Christians to admit that our faith and our trust in God begins at the starting point of a decision, a rational response to the evidence presented to us, but a belief that cannot be empirically proven. Now, take note before you think I'm a heretic. It's not just Christians who make that leap of faith. The naturalist, The atheist, the materialist, has made a similar but opposite leap of faith. They choose to look at the evidence they see in the world and take this as the starting point. There must be a natural explanation. They choose that starting point by faith. And then they seek to confirm it with evidence. That is their presupposition. Why am I hammering away at this? Because Hebrews challenges us, draw near through faith. This is where our race begins, draw near through faith. Indeed, without faith, you can't please God. And so every single one of us, every man and woman and boy and girl who is listening to this message at some point along the journey of our lives comes to a point where we make a conscious decision for or against a biblical faith position. In other words, two people. Maybe two friends can look up into the Milky Way, into the vastness of the universe, and then conversely look down through the microscope at the intricacy of the atom and the geometric and biological codes that make up life. And those two people may have directly opposite responses. One will say, based on the evidence before my eyes, I have no choice but to believe this could not have happened by accident. There must be an intelligent designer behind life. The perfection, the beauty, the intricacies of life are too vast to have happened by some cosmic explosion of gases and chemicals and stirred together over billions of years. I just can't believe that. In my mind's eye, every bird, every tree, every star in the galaxy, every newborn child cries out to me, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. But their friends sitting beside them can say, well, I hear you and I see the very same things you see, but I just can't get my head wrapped around a physical universe being created by a spiritual being. It hurts my head. I just can't believe it. And so I'm choosing to believe that there's another explanation, a natural explanation. A man named Bingham Hunter says this, gives a definition of faith in this way. Faith is a rational response. Faith is a rational response to the evidence of God's self-revelation in nature Human history, the scriptures, and his resurrected son. Now you might wonder why I'm harping away on this. It's because the church is in the business of continually calling people to a decision of faith. It's what we do. Will you join us on the journey of faith? Will you place your faith, will you place your confidence in what the Bible tells us is true about God and about our lives? Knowing full well that there are many questions that we will not be able to answer this side of eternity. Uh, One example, and it as well is embedded in our paragraph here. The example of creation. Uh, We will never be able to humanly explain the creation process. How was it that God did what he did? But Hebrews 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You see, we don't know how it is that God spoke the world into being, but we choose to believe that it is true. And in the very same way, the naturalist who tries to explain what he places his faith in, this theory called the Big Bang, that the universe exploded out of some central ball of energy, cannot explain how it happened. But he makes a presuppositional choice. I don't have all the answers, but I choose to believe that this is how it happened. So Hebrews reminds us the starting blocks for this race is the choice of faith. And so without a question, without a doubt, there are many people listening to this message even right now that this is the most in question, important question that really matters right now in your life. Because until you make up your mind about this question, the rest is irrelevant. So what do you say? Can you? Will you? Have you? made a choice, a decision, a conscious act of your will to say, I do not have all the answers. I may never have all the answers, but based on the evidence that I do have, based on the testimony of creation, of scripture, of conscience, of the life of Christ, I choose to believe. Once that decision is made, then it's like buckle up and get prepared for the right of your life. There's two more phrases, and we're going to cover them a lot more quickly than that first one. Draw near, and then hold fast, and stir up. So the second admonition is hold fast. Chapter 10, verse 23, Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And again, it's a theme that is repeated over and over through this book. In Hebrews chapter 3, you'll see the phrase, don't harden your hearts. In Hebrews chapter 4, let's hold fast to our confession. In Hebrews 10, don't throw away your confidence. In other words, you've made your confession of faith. Now hold on, because your faith is going to be tested in the crucible of life. Warning, danger. Wake up. Stay alert. It's why these phrases are woven all through the New Testament. Because many who have gone before us have shipwrecked their faith. They started out well, but they abandoned their faith. They got distracted. They got discouraged. They got pulled away by sin or other philosophies. Maybe you don't know that Canada had what some called Canada's Billy Graham. In fact, he was a friend of Billy Graham, a man by the name of Charles Templeton. He came to faith in Christ through a radical conversion experience. He was a journalist. He met Christ. He leaves journalism. He begins to preach the gospel. He planted a church and very quickly was filling an auditorium of 1,200 strong. And then he began to go on the road with an evangelistic ministry. He met Billy Graham in person for the first time, 1945, at a Youth for Christ rally. And the two of them actually traveled Europe together, uh, preaching evangelistic messages. But Templeton began to have doubts. Specifically, he began to have doubts about the authority of Scripture. Could it be trusted? And he began to share his doubts and pepper his doubts with Billy Graham. He would say to him, Billy, your faith is too simple. People no longer believe the Bible and accept the Bible the way you do in simplicity. And Billy Graham shares in his own autobiography that it led to a personal crisis of faith where he began to wrestle with these very same questions. And after several months of study and prayer and wrestling, he is on a walk in the San Bernardino Mountains in California. And everything comes to a head. He gets down on his knees and he is gripping his Bible in his hands. And he says, I go to confession to the Lord that I cannot answer all of these philosophical questions that my friend Templeton is asking, but I am making this decision. And he shares this in his autobiography, father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith and I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, I will believe this to be your inspired word. From that moment on, people say that Graham's preaching ministry exploded. But it was a bitter moment for these two friends. They went in opposite directions. As Billy Graham goes on to a fruitful and persuasive ministry of evangelism, Templeton resigned from his ministry. He returned to journalism and he grew increasingly bitter and even hateful towards Christianity. And near the end of his life, he wrote his own spiritual autobiography, a book entitled, Farewell to God, The Reason I Left the Christian Faith. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Now, these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, Jesus prophesied that in the last days, before his return, that there would be a great apostasy, a great turning away from the Lord. Matthew 24, here are some selected thoughts from that longer section. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are just the beginning of the birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation. You will be hated. Many Will fall away. The love of many will grow cold. But then this promise, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's why Hebrews hammers away at this theme over and over and over again. Pay close attention, don't lose heart, don't grow weary, don't give up, because your eternal destiny is on the line. And it leads us directly into the next race admonition. Draw near, hold fast, and now it gets kind of fun. Stir up. Hebrews 10, 24. Let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word here, stir up, is a provocative word. Literally, it's provocative. It literally is translated as to provoke in some areas. Consider how you can provoke one another. It's translated as sharpen, incite, even irritate. And typically it's a negative word, but it's used in this context for a positive end. Uh, The New International Version says, let's consider how we can spur one another on. And I've got an image of a cowboy with his spurs kicking the side of the horse. The New American Standard Version says, consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And I have a a picture of a scientist in the lab dropping a catalyst into a Petri dish and starting that explosion. The King James Version, how we might provoke one another unto love and good works. What the author is saying is simply this. This is where the fun begins. I'm giving you permission to pester each other into the good works of the Christian life. It's okay for you to be a pain in the side of your brothers and sisters in a good way. The author takes a term that was used and could have been heard as a negative and turns it on its head. Provoke one another unto love and good works. You want to be a pain in the side of your brother and sister? Come alongside them and say, let's do some good in the world. Let's love on our neighbors. Let's serve our community. Let's look out for those who can't look out for themselves. In fact, it's one of the key reasons that we gather So that we can provoke one another. The next verse, verse 25 says, don't forsake the gathering of God's people. Why? Because it's so often in that context, in the context of the gathering of God's people, whether it is a large public event or a small private Bible study in a home. It is in these times of being together that the, the Spirit of God has an opportunity in a unique way to speak into our lives simply because we've made ourselves available. How often have you gone to a gathering of God's people, to a worship service, or a Bible study, and quite honestly, you had no specific expectation, and the Spirit of God showed up through the music? Through the word, through the prayers of a friend, or even a conversation before or after the gathering. And you went home saying to yourself, I am so glad that I came today. I would have missed out on this aspect. And it begs the question what kind of expectations do we bring when we gather? Do we come with open hands, an open heart, an open ears, an open life? In a posture that says, Lord, I don't know what you have for me today, but I want to hear your voice. I want to feel your touch. I want to have my mind renewed. So Lord, would you speak to me today? It's so critical because as the text indicates, some who have given up on the gathering end up shipwrecking their lives. It quite frankly is one of the reasons this pandemic has hit the church so hard. It is why we are so looking forward to the day when we can gather again as per usual, because the gathering is essential to our life of faith. The great fear for many pastors is when this is all over, that many will not return, that in this 18 months or so, that many will have literally drifted away from the faith. They have not been gathering, and now they give up on the gathering and perhaps give up on their faith entirely. We need to encourage one another. And so here's how the chapter ends. Chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed." but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There's an entire hall of fame. The all-stars that have gone before us in the next chapter. Chapter 11, ordinary men and women who ended their race well because they had their eyes on a prize. And then you get to the end of this paragraph in chapter 12, verse 1. Run your race with endurance lay aside the weight of anything that would entangle you and the imagery here is obviously the imagery of race day any of you who have watched a runner will know that they shed any extra weight they possibly can the runner's clothing is made out of lightweight fabric their shoes weigh just a few ounces they have shed a few pounds themselves in anticipation of race day And then Hebrews 12 gives us this race day advice. Anything then spiritually that could entangle you or hold you back or weigh you down, get rid of it. And it's speaking of the process of sanctification. This ongoing process of reformation and renewal and repentance that happens on a daily basis, that the Lord is faithful to us. He does not give up on us. He just keeps working on us, never giving up, making us more like Jesus. The marathoner, the ultra-marathoner, the Ironman participant will tell you if they want to finish the race, There are radical changes to their lifestyle that they willingly embrace. Their diet changes. Their sleep patterns change. Their daily disciplines and training change. And why? Because they have a goal in front of them. They want to win this race. Now, I know that this is going to be hard for you to imagine, but picture this if you will. 20 years ago and 20 pounds ago, I decided to attempt a marathon. I went to the bookstore, grabbed a few books on training, and I stumbled onto Dean Carnez's story. Now, Dean is a crazy man, and I've followed him these last 20 years. His story begins like this In 1992, he is a 30 year old, and his wife throws a party with a bunch of friends. And he is feeling frustrated and discouraged. He hasn't run for 15 years. He's put on a little extra weight. And he is seeing the end of his life. He's now 30 years old. He's at the top of his game. He thinks it's all downhill from there. And so as the story goes, at the end of the party, he sends his wife home with the car. And he says, honey, I'm going for a run. It's near midnight. He literally strips down to his boxer shorts. And he's wearing a pair of runners that he used to do the yard work. And seven hours later, 30 miles down the road, he calls his wife from a cafe and says, come pick me up. And that midnight run catapulted him into a life of running that would alter every aspect of his life. He began running marathons and then he moved up to ultra marathons. So a marathon is 26 miles. An ultra-marathon is anything over 100 miles. In 1993, he ran his first ultra, the Western States Endurance Run. It's through the Sierra Sierra Nevada Mountains, rather. It was a 100-mile racehorse to begin with, and now some 300 runners run it every year. In 1995, he ran the Badwater Ultra, which is 135 miles across the floor of Death Valley, in 120 degree heat. In 2000, he took on one of the Ragnar relay races. Now a Ragnar is a 199 mile race and typically it's run by a team of 12 people who share 36 legs of the journey. But he took it on all by himself. He ran the entire 199 alone. In 2002, he ran in 128 degrees below zero to become the first human to run a marathon at the South Pole. In 2006, he ran 50 marathons in 50 states on 50 consecutive days. Either this is total inspiration or total stupidity. Uh, There's so many other things he's done in the ensuing years, I don't have time to even talk about them. But this last year, just before COVID shut down world travel, Carnezes, who's now 58 years old, was planning to run a marathon in every country in the world in under a year. Either he is crazy, an inspiration, or he is a freak of nature. Now take a story like that, and then read 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know... That in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You see, the challenge and the encouragement for us then is pretty straightforward. The transition of our lead pastor might feel like a leg of the journey is coming to an end, and it is. We're in a time of passing the baton. But the race for Northview carries on. The goal, the finish line, the race does not change. The mission of the church remains very much the same because it's not our mission. It's Jesus' mission. We're simply his agents, his hands, his voice, his feet. And our part in this race is to get alongside Jesus and to join him on his mission to make disciples of all nations. To let as many people we can in our lifetime know the name and the fame of Jesus. That the Father came looking for us before we went looking for Him. That the brokenness of our world can be mended at the foot of the cross. That all of the hurt and the pain and the suffering of this life, which is very real, will one day be set right. That God in His love came to reconcile us to Himself and also to one another. And so we declare it. And we demonstrate it. Through our lives of love and service, in our city, in our nation, in our neighborhoods, in the world, in our families, in our workplaces. To come alongside hurting people and acknowledge the pain and the brokenness all around us. As we watch the nightly news, to weep with those who weep. And to work for justice and peace in every sphere of life. And to stand with those who cannot speak for themselves. And despite the craziness of our times, and despite the dark clouds on the horizons of our culture, to never give up because our eyes are on Jesus. So, yes, we're in a time of transition. We're going to say goodbye to Pastor Jeff. And there will be various emotions that come with that natural part of transitioning. But the mission hasn't changed, we have a race to run. So let me remind you of our call: draw near, hold fast, stir up, and then strip down and run your race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. Lay us, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race. That is set before us looking to Jesus. Let me pray with you. Father, you know the various emotions that are going on in our hearts and minds in these days. You know that as we look back over the previous years of ministry, how abundantly you have blessed Northview Church. And a huge part of that was the blessing of Pastor Jeff's pulpit ministry among us. And so, Father, we admit we are going to miss our dear brother. But Lord, we also look forward to the days coming ahead of us. And we acknowledge and we remind ourselves that we are building on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. Our generation is just one in many long generations of the men and women of faith who've gone before us. And if you tarry, the men and women who are going to come after us. And so Lord, may it be said of us that we were found faithful in our time, in our place, in our generation Would you encourage us, Lord, to draw near through faith, to hold fast, to stir one another up, and ultimately, Lord, to strip down and run this race with endurance under your glory, and it will be to our great joy as well. In the name of Jesus, amen.